Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. October 30th, 1974 was my fifth birthday, but many people remember it for something else. People remember it as the date when the rumble in the jungle occurred. If you don't know what that is, that was a heavyweight title fight between then challenger Muhammad Ali and the reigning heavyweight champion George Foreman. The fight took place in the African nation of Zaire. Now, given the reputations and the legacies of the two fighters, you might be surprised to learn that anybody who knew anything about the boxing world at that time gave Muhammad Ali very little chance of winning this heavyweight title fight. Before he became famous for making grills, George Foreman was actually known as one of the most powerful punchers in heavyweight boxing history. While on the other hand, Muhammad Ali was 32 years old at the time and had fought in the previous two years both Joe Frazier and Ken Norton and lost to both of them. At the same time, George Foreman had also fought Joe Frazier and Ken Norton and knocked both of them out in two rounds. And so George Foreman was at the height of the boxing world. In the days leading up to their fight, Muhammad Ali boasted, as Muhammad Ali often did, that George Foreman would not be able to handle his speed. And if you watch the fight, you can see that as the first round began, that it seemed that Muhammad Ali intended to use his quickness against Foreman. But in the subsequent rounds, Muhammad Ali began to adopt what has now come to be known as the rope-a-dope tactic where he just leaned back on the ropes and let George Foreman hit him as he protected himself. As he did this in the subsequent rounds, George Foreman became increasingly angry, frustrated, and tired. So eventually in the eighth round, Muhammad Ali came off the ropes and knocked out and exhausted George Foreman to regain the heavyweight title. Against all prognostications and predictions, he was able to pull this off. And that's one of the reasons he's considered to be such a great fighter. The lesson here in the greatness of Muhammad Ali is that he knew his opponent. He knew that he could not go toe-to-toe with George Foreman's power and win that fight. But he also knew that George Foreman was not conditioned enough to go late into the rounds, especially in hot, humid African air. Muhammad Ali knew his opponent. Sun Tzu in The Art of War famously wrote, if you know the enemy and know yourself, You need not fear the results of a hundred battles. In other words, one of the keys to winning any contest, any battle, any war, any conflict, is knowing your opponent, knowing your enemy. And as you reflect upon that, you're probably sitting there thinking, yeah, I, I agree with that. There's nothing to dispute there, but I'm not sure how that's relevant to me because I don't have any enemies that I know of and I'm not involved in any conflicts or battles or war at the present moment. And if you're thinking that, you're wrong. You are involved in a battle. You are involved in a contest, a conflict against an opponent who is immeasurably more powerful than George Foreman and not nearly as susceptible to to fatigue. He is powerful, he is relentless, and he is scheming every second of every minute of every hour of every day for your ultimate destruction and downfall. You do have an enemy, and your enemy is the devil. And it has been said that the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. 
which simply means it's important in any kind of contest to know our enemy. It's better to know the enemy than to not know the enemy. One of the keys to our success in our spiritual battles is knowing our opponent, knowing our enemy, knowing the devil. And so what are some things that we can know about the devil that can equip us to fight this opponent, this enemy that we have? What can we know about the devil from the scriptures? Well, let's consider that question by looking at a couple verses from Luke this morning. Luke chapter 22. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to that chapter, Luke's Gospel 22. We're just going to look at a couple verses primarily, verses 31 and 32. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to locate uh, a Bible in one of the seats in front of you. I actually don't know if this, those Bibles have been disinfected, but they are there for your use if you want them. Uh, and our text is on page 514. Again, just primarily two verses, but I'm going to go ahead and read through verse 34. Okay, so Luke chapter 22, primarily verses 31 and 32, but I'll read through verse 34. And let's stand for the reading of God's word. These are Jesus' words to Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. To those who have ears to hear, let them hear the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, just a few short verses here. So what can we say about the devil we know from Luke 22, verses 31 and 32? Well, we can say at least three, these three things. The devil is real, the devil is active, and the devil is limited. He's real, he's active, and he's limited. So let's consider first that the devil is real. Now, it's not surprising that our, in our supposedly scientific age that most people will dismiss the existence of any kind of supernatural beings, including the devil, and included in that would be angels and demons as well. That's not surprising, but what might be a little bit more surprising is that this seems to be the case as well among many professing Christians. Research conducted by the Barna Group several years ago revealed that only about one-third of those who identified themselves as Christians believed that the devil was a real personal being. Only one-third believed that. And it's possible that you're sitting here this morning thinking, I'm not really sure I believe in a real personal devil who exists. And if you're thinking that, then you must know more about these things than Jesus knows about them. Because Jesus refers to the devil as real. He refers to Satan explicitly in our text as real. In fact, the clear and consistent instruction of the Bible is that the devil is real. The devil shows up to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. He enters into Judas before he betrays Jesus. Paul attributes his thorn in the flesh to Satan. So the Bible says the devil is real, but he's referred to in a number of different ways in the scriptures. We're saying the devil is real. The devil, as a, as a term or a title or, or a name, comes from the Greek term diabolos, which simply means slanderer. Devil means slanderer. He's also referred to in our text and in other places in Scripture as Satan. 
Satan is actually a Hebrew word from the Old Testament that means adversary. And we see him acting as an adversary in the Old Testament book of Job. Throughout that entire book, acting as Job's adversary. And we see him acting as an adversary against Joshua the high priest, accusing him in Zechariah chapter 3, which David has already read to us this morning. Elsewhere in scripture, he is referred to as Beelzebub, the prince of demons. This kind of designation of the prince of demons gives us this idea that he has some kind of elevated rank or position over the other demons. There seems to be this kind of hierarchy at which the devil or Satan or Beelzebub is at the top in terms of rank. Jesus himself refers to the devil as the ruler of this world in John chapter 14, verse 30. Paul refers to him as the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. And oftentimes he's simply referred to as the evil one. He's identified, furthermore, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, as the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. So here we see that all these descriptive terms are referring to the same being, the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, all the same person. Now, this reference to the ancient serpent takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent in the garden is tempting Adam and Eve to sin against God. So, think about that. From the earliest chapters of the Bible, Genesis 3, all the way to the last chapters of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20, the clear and consistent teaching of the scriptures is that the devil is real. And so unless you want to dispense with the thorough and clear teaching of the Bible, and unless you want to dispense with the views that are clearly espoused by Jesus about the devil, we also will affirm that the devil is real, regardless of how unsophisticated, unscientific, or outdated that might sound to modern ears. The devil is real. We find him all the way back at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. But when we think about that, when we think about his presence in the garden, Genesis 3, we might wonder, where does he come from? How did he get there? What's his origin? And actually, the scriptures don't give us a whole lot of information about the origins of Satan, where he comes from. We know from 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, that some angels sinned against the Lord. But when did this happen? Apparently, before the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter 3, there's actually a previous fall, an angelic fall. But when and how and why this happened is almost completely shrouded in mystery. Scriptures just don't give us a whole lot of detail about that. Was Satan the first angel who sinned against God and then subsequently led a revolt of other angels against the authority and the power and worship of God? Well, that's how it's typically understood. And perhaps that's what happened. Maybe it's even probable that that's what happened. But the truth is the Bible doesn't give us enough information to speak as dogmatically about these kinds of things as as we sometimes act like it does. It just doesn't say a whole lot about the origins of Satan and the devil. Where does he come from? But what it does speak clearly about is that he's real. We don't know a lot about his origins. Maybe is worth mentioning at this point that we don't know what he looks like either. That most of you have probably seen the devil depicted with red skin 
and a goat's beard with horns and hooves and a pointed tail holding a pitchfork. No one ever thought the devil looked like that. The devil was often depicted that way in order to poke fun at him. People like Martin Luther and other teachers in the church believed that because of Satan's pride, which again, many speculate is the root of his rebellion and revolt against God, revolts out of pride, despising his own position and the ultimate position of God, in his pride, he cannot bear to be ridiculed or mocked. And so to do so is one way to drive him away. That's why he's depicted that way, but nobody thought he looked that way. And the truth is, we don't know what he looks like. We don't really know where he comes from. We don't know much about his origin. We don't know what he looked like. So there's some things about the devil that we don't know. But there are other things that we do know. We know that the devil is real. We also know that the devil is active. The devil is active. And we see that in our text. We see that the devil wants to sift the disciples like wheat. And he wants to sift all the disciples. The pronoun in verse 31 He's asked to sift you is plural. He's asked to sift you all, Simon. So he wants to sift all the disciples like wheat. And the sifting as wheat involved a process of vigorous shaking through a filter to separate the kernels of wheat from the debris and from the chaff that would be unworthy to be kept, would be thrown away into the fire. And so often this sifting as wheat was used as imagery to depict judgment exposing that which was unworthy and giving it over to burning and to judgment. And so that's what Satan wants here. He wants to bring the disciples into judgment by exposing their sin. He wants them to fall away from the Lord Jesus by destroying their faith. We see that in this context. Peter says, I'll go to death with you. I'll go to prison with you. And Jesus says, you're gonna deny me. So Peter doesn't know his enemy and he doesn't know himself, we see in this passage. But he wants to destroy the disciples by taking them away from Jesus. And the devil is active against us in the same way. And he has a practically limitless array of strategies and tactics that are designed to destroy our faith, to sow unbelief, and to blind our minds against the Lord. But in all of those strategies he has, the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, that we are not ignorant of his devices. That we know what he's about. We could know his schemes. And so let's think about some of those this morning for just a bit. For example, we know that the devil is active in temptation. We know that he's actively involved in temptation. We see this, again, in the Garden of Eden, the temptation of Adam and Eve. We see it when he shows up in the wilderness to tempt Jesus after 40 days. And in those temptations, he's attacking God's word in order to sow unbelief. In both of those instances, attempting to sow unbelief and destroy faith in God's word and in his character. Now, of course, these two instances involve direct temptation by Satan. But every time that we're tempted, we shouldn't automatically assume that we're being acted upon directly by Satan himself. Remember that in the New Testament, there's a great deal of activity among the demons. And it seems the demons are often doing Satan's bidding. And perhaps they're involved more frequently in tempting us. Again, we don't know a lot of details about these kinds 
of things. C.S. Lewis has written an imaginative and creative book on the activity of the temptation of demons called the Screw Tape Letter. Some of you perhaps have read that. I would commend it to you. I know our, our youth is familiar with that because they've been studying it. Um, but it talks about the temptation of the demons, by the demons, upon a subject. Now, it's speculative, but we do know that the devil himself is involved in tempting us. And of course, one of the key components in temptation is deception. Deception. Jesus says the devil is a liar and is the father of lies. He's a liar. And of course, one of the aims of lying is to deceive. He wants to deceive us. But of course, the devil is very subtle. He's crafty. We learned that early in Genesis chapter 3. And so oftentimes his lies are subtle and they're very close to the truth. He specializes in half-truths often in an attempt to deceive us. And that's why we have to know the word of God. We have to know the truth really, really well in order to discern those lies and in order to refute those lies. That's why it's important that we give ourselves to the deep study of Scripture so that we can refute the devil's lies, which is exactly what we see Jesus doing in the wilderness. When Satan is tempting him, he responds to the devil each time by quoting the Scriptures, by quoting the Word of God. And he does this even when Satan misapplies and twists the Scriptures to tempt and deceive Jesus. Yes, Satan will even use Scripture to try to deceive us and tempt us. He'll use anything at his disposal. In fact, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, that Satan masquerades as an angel of light in his practice of deception. He will masquerade as an angel of light. So we have to know the true light really well in order to detect that. He's, he's a master at crafting bait. And he'll make that bait sparkle and shine. But that sparkle and shine is hiding hooks that will ensnare and will destroy. And so we have to be very discerning and knowledgeable of the scriptures in order to face the deceptive activity of the devil. One of the ways that this deception takes place is in confusion. Satan loves to breed confusion, doctrinal and theological confusion, and moral confusion. In other words, Satan loves it when we will regard issues that are black and white as if they are gray, and take issues that are gray and make them black and white. In other words, he wants us to be tolerant where firm moral conviction is called for. And subsequently, he wants us to dig our heels in on matters of personal preference where there's actually Christian liberty involved. And so the devil is quite happy when we are soft or neutral on moral issues like human sexuality, like the divine inspiration and authority of the scriptures, like issues involving human justice for the oppressed, for the wronged, and for the unborn. He wants us to take soft, neutral stances on those things, and he wants us to develop firm and uncharitable convictions 
over such things like drinking wine, the style of worship music, and whether you wear masks during a pandemic or not. Major on the minors and minimize the majors. That's the work of the devil, to confuse us on those things. And of course, when he confuses us about those kinds of things, he's also at the same time sowing division among us. It's another one of his activities. He is active in division to separate us from one another. He'll do this by generating fear, by generating distrust of one another. If you fear people and distrust them, you will not feel united with them. We'll feel divided. And one of the ways that he sows this division is that he wants to convince us that being right is more important than being loving. As if these things can't exist together. But he wants to convince us that being right is more important than being loving. And if we buy that lie, that being right is more important than being loving, then we will be able to justify all kinds of impatience, unkindness, rudeness, arrogance, harshness, maliciousness, and hatred against anyone who disagrees with our position. We will be able to justify it because we will begin to see those things as badges of loyalty and faithfulness to Jesus and his cause because we're right. I mean, how deceived do we have to be to justify our own hatred, maliciousness, rudeness, and cruelty toward others? To think that that's loyalty to the Jesus who said, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. If you love one another is how we'll be known. It's the mark of the Christian and yet we're easily deceived into this kind of division. The devil is also active in affliction. Satan will attack with pain and misery in order to destroy our faith in the goodness and wisdom of God. He'll try to destroy us through pain. We see this clearly throughout the book of Job, right? He's afflicting him with physical and emotional anguish. We see it also in an episode in Luke chapter 13 where Jesus heals a woman who is suffering from a disabling spirit that caused her not to be able to stand up straight. And when he heals her, the ruler of the synagogue is upset. And this is Jesus' response in Luke chapter 13 verse 16 about this healing. Listen to what he says. He says, Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond? He attributes that affliction to the work of Satan. It seems to me we aren't really open to that much these days. And it also seems to me that we have warrant from Scripture to, have a, to see a connection between physical affliction and the work of the devil. Now, I'm not suggesting that we see every single instance of disease or affliction or pain that we experience as a direct assault by Satan. But it seems to me that we shouldn't be nearly as close to the reality of that as we are. Let I me mean, just think about this. Think of the closely related action in persecution of the church. 
persecuting the church is really just corporate affliction. And most of us really don't have any obstacles in recognizing satanic activity involved in the persecution of the church. And yet, if we are willing to recognize that that happens corporately, are we not also to be open to how that might happen individually? Satan using affliction to destroy faith. And if he can't use pain to undo us, that's fine. He'll use pleasure and diversion and distraction. So the devil is also active in distraction. Notice that in the parable Jesus tells about the soils, the sower, that, sn- that Satan snatches away the good seed that falls on the hard soil. He doesn't just leave it there. He snatches it away, takes it away. Don't give him an opportunity to think about that, to absorb that, distract them. Don't have people think about the reality of their approaching death. Just don't think about it. If you don't think about it, maybe it's not going to happen. Distract people from the reality of eternal things. It's possible to ask them on their deathbed, what do, what do you think about God? What conclusions have you made about Jesus in the afterlife and your need for forgiveness? And to hear a response like this, I don't know, I've never thought about it. <laughs> it's possible to live an entire life distracted from the weight of eternal things through entertainment, through work, through all kinds of things. C.S. Lewis has screw tape. Put it like this in the screw tape letter. Screw tape is a senior demon who's giving instructions to a junior demon about how to tempt a human subject. Okay? So this is screw tape's advice to this junior demon. He says, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. Of course, again, Screwtape's enemy is is God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Listen to this. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. In other words, put people on the road to hell and distract them so they never think about where they are or where they're going. And it may be that we think that the devil is not active because the demons are not stabbing us with pain. Well, maybe it's because they're caressing us to death. Think about that. Consoling us and caressing us to death. Finally, the devil is also active in accusation. This is part of his main work as the adversary, to accuse people. The devil wants condemnation to dominate your thinking. He wants condemnation to dominate your thinking, which might be self-condemnation, which leaves you with paralyzing guilt and self-loathing, and that does not produce godly living. And if it's not self-condemnation, he wants our thinking to be dominated by the condemnation of other people, which is fueled by and fuels pride, arrogance, and self-righteousness. And those things do not produce 
godly living. And in addition to self-condemnation and the condemnation of others, he wants us to condemn God. He wants us to condemn God. He, he accuses us to God and he accuses God to us so that we won't believe a word about his truth, his goodness, his wisdom, his mercy, his love, and his grace. He wants us like Job to curse God and die. You know what cursing God is? It's condemning him. And ultimately what he wants in the end is our death. He wants us in the end to be lost in everlasting destruction and death. That's why Jesus says the devil is a murderer from the beginning. He's a taker of life. God is the creator and giver of the gift of life. The devil is a taker of life through condemnation. And he wants us to be condemned by destroying our faith, sowing unbelief, and blinding our minds. And these are just some of the ways that the devil is active in those kinds of things. But I would trust that this is enough that the reality that the devil is active would make us serious and sober-minded. Serious and sober-minded, but not terrified. Because, thirdly, the devil is limited. The devil is limited. First, the devil is limited because he's a creature. And as a creature, he's under the authority and the power of God. There are not two equal powers doing battle in the cosmos for ultimate supremacy. That's, that's not the universe that we live in. There is one ultimate power, and it's God. Satan is not divine. He does not have divine attributes. Satan is not all-powerful. He's not all-knowing. He's not ever-present. He's not divine. He's a creature who is subject to the authority of God and the authority of the Lord Jesus, which is why Satan has to ask permission for his actions to be active. It's kind of unfortunate in the ESV that it translates the verb demanded here because in the Greek it carries the connotation of making a request. He's having to ask Jesus for permission to sift the disciples. And we see this in the book of Job as well. Satan has to ask permission from God to attack Job. We see this in the New Testament where Jesus is driving out demons from an individual and they ask permission to go into a herd of pigs and Jesus grants it. He has to ask permission as a creature. The devil may be a roaring lion, but he's a roaring lion who's been placed on a leash. He's on a leash. But it's understandable if this raises some tension in your minds. If it raises this question, why is the leash so long then? Why does the Lord allow so much activity on the part of Satan? Why doesn't he just destroy him? Why doesn't he just annihilate him instead of allowing him to be active? I'm not going to pretend that I can answer that question. What I think we can say with confidence is that the tactics that Satan uses to destroy us, God uses to grow us and to strengthen us and to sanctify us. In other words, Satan tempts us to destroy us where God allows tests and trials into our life to strengthen us, to build up our character. Facing deception requires us to exercise our powers of discernment. Knowing that the devil is trying to deceive us is what ought to compel us to study the scriptures deeply. And that's how we grow. 
by knowing that there's a tempter who wants to deceive us and we expose ourselves to the truth. Being afflicted weans us from the idols that we create in the world and it directs us to place our hope in God and God alone. Persecution of the church purifies the church. This has been seen throughout history and accusations of guilt thrust us toward a savior to deliver us from that guilt. Where Satan wants to destroy us through these things, God allows them in order to strengthen us, to sanctify us, to grow us. But he's limited in what he can do because he's a creature. But he's also limited because he's conquered. He's conquered. The devil has been defeated by Jesus through the cross and the resurrection. The cross muzzles every accusation that the devil could levy against God's people in the courtroom of heaven. Muzzles all those accusations. Through the cross, the blood of Christ has been shed for the forgiveness of the sins of his people. And the empty tomb robs him of the power of the grave, the power of death. And we see in our text as well that the prayers of Jesus as the one who died for his people as the one who has been raised for his people, as the one who has ascended and intercedes for his people, the prayers of Jesus limit the power of the devil. And just as Jesus says to Peter here, I have prayed for you, Simon. The you now is in the singular. He's asked to sift all of you, but I've prayed for you, Simon, by name, that that your faith may not fail. And just as he says this to Peter, we also have the assurance if we're looking to Jesus by faith, that our Savior has ascended into heaven where he's at the right hand of the Father now pleading his blood for you and me by name against all the accusations of the evil one. He's praying for us. That should give us great assurance. What that means is that the devil might accuse you, tempt you, attack you, and perhaps even manipulate and afflict you but what he cannot do is possess you christian you cannot be demon possessed you cannot be possessed by the devil because you don't belong to him you belong to jesus christian because he's purchased you with his blood and he says in john 10 that nothing can snatch you from his hand The devil may be active, but the fatal blow has already been delivered. And what that means is we can resist him because he's limited and that death blow has already been delivered. We can resist him, which is what the book of James and the book of Peter tell us to do. Resist the devil. We can resist him in the power of the spirit that dwells within us. We can resist him by the word that's been given to us. We can resist him because we've been given the full armor of God. Why? So that we can withstand the schemes of the devil. That's why we've been given the armor of God. And part of that armor is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so like a confronted bully, we can resist him, and he'll run away. So James says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But let's remember this. He's not fleeing from us because we're powerful enough and we're big enough in ourselves to handle him. He flees in the power of the Spirit and the power of the Word, and because our big brother and deliverer and redeemer Jesus is big enough to handle him for us. And the devil is defeated. Jesus has crushed the serpent's head 
through the cross and the resurrection. And if we're looking to Jesus by faith and united to him, we share in his victory. I don't know if you've ever noticed this verse before, but look what Romans 16, 20 says. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Under your feet. We participate in that victory. So, it's not so much if you know the enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the results of a hundred battles. The truth is more like this. If you know Jesus as your savior and as your conquering king, you need not fear the results of a hundred battles. And so is Jesus your savior? Is he your king? By faith. If so, you need not fear. Serious, sober-minded, yes, but you need not fear the results of a thousand battles because he's been victorious for you. You need not fear a thousand accusations against you in heaven because his blood has cleansed you from all of your sins. You need not fear the grave because life is promised to you through his resurrection and you need not fear the devil because that's what we read in John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you that you have not left us ignorant of our enemy, that you have not left us ignorant of his schemes. But not only have you not left us ignorant, you have not left us alone. You have defeated our enemy, and you have been victorious through the cross and the resurrection, and we share in your victory by faith. Father, we pray that you would make that victory a part of our daily experience as we fight the good fight of faith in the power of our Savior and our Deliverer and our conquering King, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.